This episode of the Devin Kershaw Show is brought to you by the Alberta World Cup cross-country event, which is taking place in the beautiful Canadian Rockies, March 20th to the 22nd. Not only can you see the best racers in the world battle it out to hoist those giant crystal globes and their beauties, let me tell you, not that I know, I don't have any, but I've seen them. But don't just sit on the stands and cheer on the athletes. There's so many amazing events that are going on around the town of Camor throughout the whole weekend of celebrations. Chandra Crawford's Fast and Female organization will be hosting its ever-popular Champ Chat for 100 girls on Saturday, March 21st. Another Olympic champion that just happens to live in paradise, Camor, Alberta, is Becky Scott, whose organization Spirit North will have so many amazing events. You can see powwow, dancing, drumming, and she'll be at the opening ceremonies. It's going to be a celebration not to be missed. Listen, Camor, Alberta is the absolute best town on planet Earth. Take it from me, one of the most biased people you will ever hear from. I love Camor. I live in Lillehammer. I miss Camor every day. If you like cross-country skiing and you want to see the best racers in the world, gun to tape, annihilate, hoist the globes, have fun, maybe have some free Gruyere cheese samples, all while taking in the amazing hospitality of Alberta and Camor itself, get your butts to the Alberta World Cup. You can find all the details at albertaworldcup.com. This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to The Devin Kershaw Show from Faster Skier. In this midweek episode, as we ramp up for a two-race event weekend in Fallon, Sweden, we touch base with Devin and the statistical skier, known as Joran Elias, who is based in Missoula, Montana, to debrief a blog post he posted last week after the Oberstdorf Sprint weekend when Klebo essentially blew everyone out of the water with a just stellar qualifying time in the sprints. If you haven't read Joran's post yet, we republished that yesterday, which would have been Tuesday, uh, on Faster Skier. It's probably a good idea to go take a look at that piece before listening to today's episode, which again features Devin and Joran Elias. Joran, you obviously wrote this great write-up, which was super interesting. And it was interesting, you know, when I, when when Devin and I were having that conversation, I, I kept on thinking to myself, you know, maybe I'm looking at the wrong benchmark here. And clearly, and we'll get to this, but Maybe looking at Claybo and time back to Claybo isn't exactly the right way to go about breaking down data, in particular when you're looking at a 30-person field qualifying for sprints when you have someone like a Claybo who's such an outlier on occasion. Okay, so I do want to set the scene here. Maybe Joran, I'll have you jump in and introduce yourself and maybe just talk a little bit about your site and what you do um, in terms of stats and skiing. And then in particular, can you refer to, just so we're kind of, we're giving listeners uh, a little bit of a landscape here, what you wrote about and what you were writing in response to. So um, my name is Joran Elias. Uh, I've uh, had a site called statisticalskier.com and a Twitter account, Statskier, that's um, been only sort of sporadically active over, over a pretty long period of time now. Um, where I just I I collect a lot of um, results data from FIS independently and um, just have a lot of fun sort of um, crunching data um, and I write about a variety of stuff um, sort of race summaries and and analyzing various whatever sort of interests me at that particular moment 
And so I was I was listening to your podcast last uh, a week or two ago, um, and you guys were having an interesting conversation about the um, pretty large time gaps in the um, sprint qualifying in Oberstdorf and uh, about how unusual they were. And it just sort of struck me that that was sort of an interesting thing to look at and that you could probably quantify that and visualize it um, pretty conveniently um, with some data that I had. And so I just wrote a little sort of um, summary, sort of mostly agreeing with and sort of summarizing your observations, which was that, um, you know, Clybo really, really does um, frequently, you know, do sprint qualification and sort of when he wins, he he's pretty frequently off the front um, and that that's pretty typical for him. Um, and but even given that, the you know, the, the time gaps in that particular qualifier were pretty unusual. So I had I made a graph that sort of displayed that, that it was pretty atypical. And we're talking about when you're referring to the graph, are we talking about that first uh, visual? Uh, yeah. Okay, which is major international sprint qualifying percent back, correct? Correct. Okay. Um, and so I just plotted sort of as a line, sort of, you know, a line representing each race and the, the, per, the place that you finished on the x-axis and the percent back on the y. And sort of you have this sort of big, steep, you know, curve shooting way up, and it's it's sort of way different than than the sort of bulk of of other men's qualifying um, races. Um, and then uh, one thing that I like to do, though, is just um, I always sort of like to look at how people's um, results in that context compares not just to who won, but also sort of sort of who was the median or the middle skier. Um, and this is something I started doing when I was sort of summarizing race results um, back in the Mar Bjorgen days when um, she was just sort of crushing everybody. Um, and now, you know, Teresa's sort of doing the same thing now. But when, when Marit was doing that and you'd sort of plot fist points on the women's side, and it would be kind of silly because, you know, everybody's fist points in a World Cup race would be sort of absurd. And um, it, would, it would look kind of weird because it would look like someone, maybe if you compared it to a domestic race they had just done, it would look like a really terrible race. But part of it might have just been, you know, they were racing against Marit. And so I, I, like to, I like to do that just for comparison because it's an interesting sort of alternate view. And so when you do that, when you instead of calculating the percent back based on the winner, instead you sort of do a percent back based on the 15th qualifier, um, what you end up with is, you know, some of the percent backs are negative. Everyone ahead of them has a negative percent back and everyone behind them has a positive one. Um, and it's a little less dramatic. And sort of what you end up seeing is that the first you know, three to five skiers in that men's qualifier um, look particularly unusual. Um, and the rest of the field, you know, the, maybe the back third of the field is a little further back than normal, but, you know, the rest of the field looks, you know, kind of typical. Um, and so that's sort of just a, an alternate view that sort of maybe, you know, maybe tempers your your judgment a little bit that, you know, maybe those folks, you know, in the back half of that field didn't, you know, didn't personally ski super slow, 
but you know maybe part of it was that just the first three or five skiers went super fast. Devin, I'm just curious. You're probably in numeracy mode, I'm guessing, with some of your classes. Anything strike you as kind of interesting here that Jordan's presented in that first kind of half portion of his uh, analysis and, and anything that sort of like, I, I was thinking about this when I started reading this, you know, when you were racing World Cups and thinking about some of the outliers, like who were you, yeah, what were you gunning for? Obviously you wanted to qualify, but then how, who and how did you judge your performance? Yeah, well, that's you always judge against the uh, you always judge against the best skiers that you're skiing against. That's for sure. And for some of my seasons, I I, I had a string of seasons actually where sprint sprinting was would go very very well for me. So it, it was a strength of mine, absolutely. And I I've qualified first a couple of times, maybe, maybe three times. I'm not totally don't totally remember, but in the top ten, quite a few times. And it, it, I found it very interesting. I think. Jorn, you did a great job with your. I, I mean, I, I'm uh, being a Nordork. It's super fun just to, to to read analysis like this, and I've been following your your statistics through the through the years. And uh, our coach, my coach back in the day, Justin Wadsworth, had reached out to you at one point, uh, maybe like eight years ago, because <laughs> he was like fascinated. There's another super Nordork uh, <laughs> out there. So so I'm fairly familiar with. Um, your thought process and how you how you do things but what jumped out to me so substantially in this analysis which i found fascinating was when you when you compared over the 10 seasons like over 10 seasons you think that there's eight to ten world cup sprints a year if you're counting the championship in there as well that men qualifying in 25th to 30th have only reached the podium 16 times 16 times out of let's say like 100 races or more and then you you quantified that with the stat of like 1.92% of the time and that is flabbergasting because people like to believe that maybe not so much in the era of Claybo right now and who is dominating so heavily and and as you said as well with like Mara Bjergen for a number of seasons was essentially untouchable especially in sprinting actually if you go way back and then you have to take the the way back machine uh, down 15 or so years ago she was untouchable in sprints um, but 1.92% is not very much. And as an athlete, you know, like when you qualify, you like to believe that, you know, you get skewed to like, well, it's a new race. Okay. We're resetting things. And now I've got a good chance. And, and you always have those examples that you want to lean into. And those that have been following skiing for a long time will probably remember Jens Arne Svartadal, a Norwegian skier. He's actually the world champion in, in the classic sprint from 2007. But there's a number. There's a number of famous sprints that he's qualified 30th and then ends up winning, and that gets cited quite a bit on the World Cup. As <laughs> still, even today, maybe from some of the older athletes. I'm sure. I'm sure if you ask some of the guys at World Juniors uh, in a couple weeks or under 23s, if you've heard of Jens Arne all, they would have no idea who that is. But Jordan, I know you do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I found that kind of interesting because you know we like to believe that it is a clean slate once the qualification is over. And that you have a good chance, but the stats don't lie. And on the women's side, 0.8% of the time, and only seven times in the last ten seasons has someone qualified in the back five and gone on to hit the podium. That 
That that surprised me. I thought I thought those numbers would be a little higher, to be honest. I don't know why, though. I mean, I don't really have anything quantifiably to to go on other than other than those legends of the, the Svartadal legends. I think Ogbjorn Yelmeset has done it once too. So you know, you have, there's just some guys in the back of your head that you'd like to believe, like anything can happen. You know, like and I guess if you think back to there's a speed skater many Olympics ago from Australia in short track speed skating where everybody crashed in the semifinal and he was almost lapped and he makes the final and he's celebrating like he won. And then the exact same thing happens in the final. And this Australian dude, I'm sorry, no disrespect, but I don't follow <laughs> short track speed skating so closely, but he has an Olympic gold medal hanging around his, <laughs> around his neck. So, you know, I think as humans and sportsmen and fans, you, you like to believe in those Hail Marys, you know, like you guys are American. So that Doug Flutie, Boston College. Doug Flutie. Oh yeah, we're going there. Like just hucking it, hucking the pigskin from like the twenty, and then and then scoring that bananas touchdown. We like to believe in those th- those those types of stories, but that it just doesn't happen that much. And skiing is no exception. Wow, I'm sorry. I'm still. So, do you know who Doug Flutie is, Joran? Of course I do. And actually, the, Devin, you, I'm glad you mentioned that because, um, well, not Doug Flutie specifically, but I'm glad you mentioned those, those stats because I, it reminded me of something that I actually wanted to ask you because it's, um, you know, I, I, I skied in college, but that's that's as far as I my skiing career went. And I've always sort of assumed, I assume this is true, that when, when you're doing sprint qualifiers at that level, um, Athletes at that level are are not really capable of um, modulating their effort in qualifying. I, I feel like that some people have a sort of uh, an idea that some athletes might be able to sort of dial it back in qualifying if they're sort of you know and sort of um, conserve some energy and sort of still be able to qualify. And, and I've always been a little skeptical that that people's efforts can be modulated with that sort of precision. And so my presumption has always been that, you know, the folks doing qualifying, you're going all that, like you're not like trying to save anything for the heats really, I, I wouldn't think. And so it's not, it's a little less surprising to me. Those stats are a little less surprising because when I think about that, I, I'm like, well, the folks who are going to be, you know, able to ski faster i mean it's not like you know the the folks finishing in 25th or 30th are are finishing there because they've dialed you know they're trying to conserve energy for the heats they they went all out and we're still you know one and a half two percent back from from the winner and so if if that's sort of your high end you're you're still sort of going to be at a disadvantage right Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's funny you mentioned that because that is something I've heard in North America more so. You don't you do not hear that in Norway. Mm. Like that 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 question like, "Oh, I think the top guys are just saving a little bit." Like, absolutely not. You are 100% right. It is a fallacy to believe that even the Klebos of the world or the Pellegrinos of the world or the Ustigovs, I guess a few years ago, his sprint qualifiers haven't been as strong lately, but but are like holding a little bit back in their in their pockets and going like you know what the heat it's a long day i've got a lot of racing to do like bullshit they're going flat out full gas in the qualification every time because while yes oberstorp had quite the spread right i mean that was discussed like you said a few weeks ago and then you, you your analysis you were inspired by by that race but but there is also sprints that the spread is tight really tight and you can have men's qualifiers like some years in lati where you have 
where you have a spread of like four and a half seconds for the men or five seconds or some of these really short sprints. I mean, throughout history, I mean, we're going way back, but there's some sprints that are quite short. Any sprint that's two and a half minutes or less and fairly, fairly flat, you'll see a spread that's, yeah, like some, some have been under four minutes, uh, under four seconds in the past. And that takes a lot of gumption. If you're going to say like, I'm just going to hold back a bit, like what's holding back three seconds, you know what I mean? No, nobody's even Claybo or, or, veterans like Eric Branstall who's been a staple of the sprint circuit for many years even with all that experience no one wants to play with fire like that because this is this is also something that gets discussed once in a while and it's just flat out true you can't call yourself a sprinter if you never qualify for sprints and i think i think every sprinter has that in the back of their head and they're like if i don't make the yeats what kind of sprinter am i I'm a, like what am I like? You know what I mean. I'm not really a sprinter then because I never get to do the actual race. So people are going absolutely full out, and and it is interesting to hear you say that. I mean, for sure, like in a race like Oberstdorf or, or some of these races, especially you mentioned Jordan about um, the um, Claybo's prowess in classic compared to his skate. I mean, he's dominant in both, but uh, in classic, he's head and shoulders better than the rest. But the fact of the matter is, if you're in a sprint that it is a tighter spread not 15 seconds not 10 seconds but something like four or five seconds then it's it's still interesting to me that that even in those tight sprints because you went back over 10 years that qualifying in the back five you you have little to no chance of hitting the podium which 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 was surprising to me because 10 years of sprints while maybe they average out to about three minutes a sprint for the men or just over three minutes there are a number of of shorter sprints in there as well where the qualification is tighter but yet still like you said the best qualifiers are the best skiers and i guess from a physical standpoint i'm not surprised because they are just better you know when they're out there racing alone they're they're faster tactics play into it as well and especially in the men's side of things because there's not a lot of room uh, there's not a lot of room to maneuver and i've always been fascinated by the fact that you know you see a lot of accidents you see a lot of guys fall you see broken poles this happens almost every single sprint weekend yet the dominant sprinters of those seasons seem to be like moses with the red sea like they like there's like oh well i remember when when um uh, Ola Vigan Hadestad was having just a phenomenal year, one of the years that he won the Sprint Cup. I seem to see him all the time being caught out, and I'm like, okay, this is it. This is the time that Ola Vigan's popped in the quarterfinals, and then all of a sudden, the seas part, and he's in the lead, and he does this, like, quote-unquote, insane move. But he did it week in, week out, and we keep moving forward through the rounds. And I think that that just goes to show that like when you're better you're better if he's sitting at 90 percent effort in that heat and everyone else is at 100 i mean he's thinking clear he sees he sees those holes he can make those decisions and and that that probably does come back to the fact that he's just a better sprinter that season or in that particular race and that's it's super interesting Here's a question, Joran, and 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 now that you know again, I, I, I'm presuming at this point, you know, you're not under contract by a ski team, and you can talk, you know, kind of freely. But you know, the calculus maybe is a little different, you know, if you're from North America, and maybe it's just you know, outside of you know, a great day, you know, outside of say Simi, Logan Hanneman, Kevin Bolger, I'm sure I'm going to miss someone there. A podium may not be realistic 
but hitting whatever benchmark you need to make the U.S. ski team may be very re- realistic. You know, whether it's 20th, it's been a while since I've looked at, at the criteria. You know, I'm curious, you know, as, as you kind of look over stats and qualifying time and results in, in sprints, you know, how might that break down for an athlete when, okay, I'm actually not going to compare myself to a Klebo. I'm not going to compare myself to the top five because statistically, as you suggested, it's a really unreasonable, I mean, it's it's fairly unreasonable that you might podium if you're qualifying regularly between say 25th and 30th. And, uh, and maybe later on you can mention how likely it is if you're qualifying say 20th to 25th. But what do you suggest to skiers that are sort of trying to meet a different benchmark? And it is just, you know, qualifying for a national team, hitting those points. Um, well, uh, I'm, I'm not a, you know, internationally qualified <laughs> cross-country ski coach. So I, I always like, you know, I mean, I'm good with numbers, but I, I always like to be very careful about um, giving advice and being honest about you know my expertise but what i what i can say i think is probably best sort of summed up with the last um thing that i put in my post which was basically just a summary of um sort of a a rough guide of how far back in qualifying at in world cup and major international races like the olympics or world champs um, do people who end up on the podium actually, how well do they do in qualifying? And I, and I did that um, because if you, if you think about it, like if you're an American and you go and do some World Cup, you know, sprint races and you're, you know, qualifying 28th or 27th or something, um, if it were me, I would be looking at that percent back because, you know, you, you maybe aren't going to get like a ton of opportunities in, in Europe to do that. And you're, you're going to get a few and then you're going to be back in the U.S. racing again. And I would look at that percent back, you know, and say, OK, now I have a measurement of how far back I am in qualifying against the best in the world. And now, you know, think about how far sort of you have to go to sort of be in shooting distance of the people who are landing on the podium. And then when you go back and are doing sprint qualifying in the US, think about that when you when you go back to the US and you win some sprint qualifier on the Super Tour, um, look at the gap to the next person. Did you crush them or were you like a tenth of a second ahead of them? If you're only a tenth of a second ahead of you know you know, you know what I mean, yeah. um, that it you should be thinking about it that way that like you know use that as a yardstick and say okay wow you know I need to be X percent faster, and then you go back to the U.S. and you say and you do those sprint qualifiers and you're like you know am I you know qualifying you know third fourth fifth you know that's just not going to cut it um, in all likelihood you know. And, and to think about, you know, what you can do in your training and stuff, then that should be the benchmark. Um, I, I, you know, I think that's, that's probably the most, the most that I can say. And I, I would, I, I want to jump in here and say, I agree 100% with what you said about the super tour, because you hear that so much in North America. I'm sorry to say, like you win a qualifier by 0.5 seconds, but then you ski really well through the rounds 
And everyone's like, oh, yeah, now it's time, baby. That was like a semifinal in the World Cup. <laughs> it's like, no, that was a 58th in the World Cup because you're just you're not good enough to even contend for the actual race. So I, I, I love that assessment. I think I think for those that are domestic, especially right now in the men's field, both in Canada and in and in the U.S., domestically, I'm speaking domestically now, you have to work on your weaknesses to be able to deliver a phenomenal prologue. And then once you can hit that once in a while, then you have to start working on your consistency. And then when you can do that, then you're ready for the World Cup. And then you're able to qualify more often than you don't on the World Cup. And that's really the game. If you're, if you're putting your eggs into the sprint basket, you need, you need to be able to have that qualifying performance, that qualifier performance, almost, almost automatic, if you know what I mean. Yep. So, so I, I, uh, that is, that's just such great advice. I think is for those athletes and the younger athletes that, that are really wanting to be sprinters and break through and, and make a real go at it. You can do it with the domestic races, but you just have to be relentless. <laughs> you have to be absolutely relentless in, in improving your capacity and your systems and your technique and your tactics in the prologue alone to have a chance. So I, that's, uh, that's great advice. Okay. Anything else from either one of you folks? Now that I have you both on the phone. Not for me. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I find it, I, I just find it fascinating the, you know, I, like I, like I said, I'm, I'm such a Nordork and like there's, I was today, this isn't really complicated stats, but, but with Claybo missing Falun now, He's got a broken finger. Yeah, he's got a broken finger, sorry, by just acting like the 23-year-old 20, that he is. <laughs> um, but um, Bolshinov has a, a fairly substantial lead, but then with Klebo missing Falun again, it'll be really interesting to see what happens if Bolshinov crushes two races in Falun. Statistically speaking, like how realistic will it be for Klebo to have a chance to win? And to win the overall again, and I, I, I think that 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 would be really interesting to dig into after the after the the weekend's over, and if not even dig into, it'll be something that I'm I'm hoping to discuss with uh, the other super Nordorks out there because you know I was looking through the results, and the last time someone from Russia won the overall World Cup. It wasn't even a Russian. It was a Kazakh for in the Soviets in the Soviet days, and it was Vladimir Shmirnov. Mm. So, like, there has been you know, Ustigov's finished second in the overall World Cup lately. Um, the convicted doper Alexander Lakov has been finished second in the overall World Cup twice, I think. But Russia has not won the overall World Cup globe for men in thirty years. So this is going to be huge. If Bolshinov takes this overall World Cup globe, like this is massive, and it'll just be interesting to see if that like kids being kids mistake or you know just just bad luck or however you want to call it with Klebo, um, how that affects how that affects uh, how that affects the race for the overall. And I, I think with this ski tour coming up in in Trondheim and in Sweden, or sorry, not just Trondheim, but uh, Trondelag in Sweden. And then the sprint tour at the end, that favors Claybo a lot. And, and then Camorn, and there's a lot of travel, and then people are getting tired. You never know in the home and cold. There's lots of fun stuff coming on to close the season down. But 
it'd be interesting to know, like, just how out of reach is the overall World Cup now that Claybo won't be in, in Fallon? There's an assignment, Joran. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you don't have to dig into it, but it just, it's just worth discussing. It's interesting. Like, how, how, far is, how, how far does a bridge need to be before that bridge is a bridge too far, right. you know? And, but there's always, there's always the Jens Arnes Vardadals. So, maybe, you know, there's always the guys qualifying 30th and winning the World Cup, even though the statistically the chances are low. You know, you got to be good to be lucky. And some days you only have to be good enough. So it'll be interesting. But I, that's, some, that's, a, that's a statistical competition that I'm following closely. And I'm really interested to see how this weekend goes. Well, it's, it's, it's funny you mentioned that, Devin, because um, World Cup points are um, kind of a challenge. I, I don't know if you've noticed, but I... I, I I talk relatively rarely about World Cup points because the they're a little harder to sort of ingest into my um, data systems in an automated fashion um, because of all the um, the information they do publish are all in PDFs and the they do so much irregular stuff with sort of bonus points and inflated points on sort of a different with different rules and allotments every season so it's sort of it requires a lot of manual um manual adjustments and tracking but i've actually the last week or two i've been working on trying to adjust how i'm ingesting data to try to allow me to do more stuff with world code points it probably will not be ready for this weekend but (laughs) (laughs) no but you know you need you need some you need some um you need some uh, undergraduate stat students that uh, to help crunch those crunch that data for you. Not crunch. Uh, what it, I what I need what I need is yeah I need data entry is what I need. I need someone to sit in front of a computer and type numbers into a spreadsheet. Yeah, exactly. Well, if anybody's listening, go to stats. Yeah, contact Joran at statisticalskier.com. How's that? Sure. No, but but it'd be interesting. I don't know. Do you have any other questions, Joran, from um, from like for me? as far as like the racing side of things that you're curious about? Because that's always fun. That's always a fun tangent to go down. Uh, You know, you you put me on the spot. I I can't think of anything off the top of my head. But, um, oh, I guess I I do have one question, which is, were you still doing, um, you were were racing when they were doing, when they instituted the the new uh, system with the sprint races where you choose, you get to choose your quarter? Yeah. How, how um, while you were doing that, how, um, how, uh, what was sort of the level of sophistication that you saw um, among different skiers in how they were thinking about that? Well, you know, it, it's always kind of funny because, like, I think you, you, what ends up happening a little bit is, like, the gambler's fallacy starts, starts presenting itself a little bit. And sometimes people try and get cute and pick in the later heats. And say like, well, it's going to be an easier heat, and then that'll give me more, like, give me a better chance to move through. But really, the stats, at least what have been published here in Norway, I don't have them directly in front of me, but it it has been looked into. And picking that first heat because of the issue of twenty five minutes more to recover, yeah, just means everything. And the amount of winners that come from the first heat or podium finishers that come from that first heat compared to all the other heats in the quarterfinals is enough that now you see these first heats that are just stacked. Like, they're so stacked. 
and you know, they, of course, some of the other people are just if you're qualifying tenth or, or twelfth, you're like, well, I'm gonna if, if the first heat's available, they're like, well, I'm gonna go in the first heat because Claybo drives it, or you know, Bolshinov just goes gun to tape annihilate, so that gives me a better chance for lucky loser. But it is very interesting because you you also see athletes that pick that first heat and then get get nipped. I mean, during the Tour de Ski, you saw Teresa. She didn't get uh, she didn't qualify that well, but she picked the first heat in one of those sprints there and ended up fifth in her heat. But her time was still blistering fast. Like she would have moved through had she picked a fourth or fifth heat. And someone that's a distance oriented skier like Teresa, you know, probably could have been second in one of the easier heats especially in the tour de ski when you don't have full sprint fields but but she still goes for that first heat so it is really i find that fascinating and at least for me um and some of my teammates like alex or, or lenny it, it was always really interesting i mean if you were on a great day it really doesn't matter when you have confidence you're like i'm just going to pick the first heat because i mean i'll move through I'm, I'm confident i'll move through and then it just gives me that rest and that 25 minutes is not nothing like that's a lot of rest compared to your compared to the 50 20 minutes i guess it would be from the 50 going into the semi so that that's a that's a big advantage but it is interesting that that you still see athletes that that really try to like ah i'll just take the fourth or fifth heat because they're they're weak but then yeah you can get through to the semi but is your day affected by that i think it is absolutely if you're gunning for a podium but at the same time if it's a tour or or even if you're trying to just move through the ranks and want to get more experience i mean it's the same old thing like after you've been a sprinter for a long time and you always make the quarters but keep getting bounced in the quarters i mean <laughs> you you need to improve and the only way to improve is to get experience in the next heat so then maybe you have to start readjusting your your strategy so it has been very interesting for the athletes to to pick their own heats but i think that kind of cowboy <laughs> the cowboy style of when it came into the came into reality has has now changed and you and you just see you just see guys wanting more rest so that's why they go for the first heat and all the best skiers always take the first first heat yeah because i've 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 observed the same thing that you know you, you have these um first heats that are have you know that are just like you said stacked and it, it's it has seemed to me to be this sort of um damned if you do damned if you don't sort of choice for other people because you can you can choose that for you know put yourself in that first heat and have it be this incredibly fast thing with like you know f going up against the four best sprinters in the world um you know which are long odds but then if you if you put yourself in an easier heat you're basically setting yourself up for um, the semifinal round where, again, because all of the best sprinters were in the first heat, they all got the the most rest. Um, and so it's it's like this sort of flywheel effect where w once you have like all the good skiers choosing the 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 rounds with the most rest, then it, it just sort of further compounds their advantage in the next round. It's it's been kind that's of that's exactly right. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And what what you're seeing, and I mean, and not just seeing, but looking at it um, from statistical side of things, like it, it's true, and that's what happens, and that is what's happened. And so it is it is interesting. I mean. It, it's the same old thing. Like if I was going to say if you were uh, qualified, it's hard to say. But I mean, say you had a banner qualifier and you're come new into the scene and you qualify like 16th or something. I, 
I almost and you and you haven't raced many quarterfinals in your life, then maybe it is a good strategy to pick a later heat just to get that semifinal experience and see how you do. But at the same time, it is a damned if you do, damned if you don't. So it is. Uh, no, it's 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 interesting. So, but I think I think it's added to some excitement. I mean. Uh, I think it's cool that you can pick your own heats. And I also think like the lucky losers being times now, instead of going back, I mean, everything dates me, but that's fine. I mean, my, <laughs> my back dates me. That's uh, <laughs> when it, when it, when it's hard to get up in the morning, then that dates you already. So, but, um, but I think it is really such a better system that people can pick their own heats. It's in, it makes it for a more interesting race. And then also uh, the fact that back in the days, it was just like, whoever was third in their heats with the highest qualification bib would move on as the quote unquote lucky losers. And that was, that was a stupid system because <laughs> you already, you know, yeah. I don't know. I think it's, I just think it makes a more interesting race to, to have the lucky loser times, uh, deciding those next, those next, uh, the people that get to move on or not. So it's, but it is interesting. Okay. Well, thanks guys. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks. No yeah, thank really you. Really great chatting with you, and keep. I, I like. I've. Uh, yeah, like I said, I've been following your site for a long time, and I always find it fascinating. This latest one was super interesting. So, thanks for sharing. Oh, thank you. I've been enjoying your podcast. Thanks for having yeah, me on. Thanks. Yeah. We'll have to have you on again. <laughs> yeah, thanks for your work, Jorn. Appreciate it, and have a great day. Yeah, yeah. you too. Take care, thanks. guys. Thanks for listening. <laughs>